Bloody Mary, a podcast about horror movies, feminism, and sexuality. I'm your host, Chicago comic Kristen Lighty, and today we have with us Angie Harris. You may remember her from the Martyrs episode. Angie, why don't you introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Angela Harris, Angie. Um, I run a horror blog called Overthinking Horror Films. Dot com where I write about horror and um, do a lot of writing on race and gender and horror. Um, so yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thanks. Yeah, we're so happy. We, as in it's not me. <laughs> I'm so happy to have you here. And for everyone listening, check out Angela's blog. It's amazing. It's so many thoughtful essays on horror. And um, yeah, I'm pumped to have you back again. And I'm curious, uh, since we already talked about the first horror movie you saw, what are some of your favorite horror films you've seen over the years? Um, this one that we're talking about today, I think, is you know a new favorite. Um, I also love Martyrs, which we talked about last time I was here. <laughs> I think it's an amazing horror film. Um, I love Kill List, which is a great um, British horror film, I think from around 2009. Um, pretty pretty intense film there um yeah I have a lot of favorites for different reasons but I'd say like those are maybe the top I also love Candyman oh Candyman is so kind good of, yeah Candyman's so good um so yeah those are some of my favorites you know that the ones that have like a, a little bit of a social message I think are the mm-hmm. ones that I tend to gravitate towards mm-hmm I constantly joke on this podcast that I want Candyman to come back and just start killing yuppies. <laughs> In parking garages. Yep. Right where Cabrini used to be, where they built, uh, what is it, Newtown? New yeah, City? Yeah, and that yeah. new Target and everything that's yeah. over there. Hmm. That needs some Candyman in it. <laughs> You know, a lot of people have different theories on how to deal with gentrification. I think Candyman candy would work. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I'm there. All right. Well, I am so excited to have you on to talk about this movie. I've been wanting to do this since this spring, really. Mm-hmm. And then my life kind of blew up. I got a divorce and got put on a bunch of comedy festivals and was out of town. But now you're here Yay. and we're going to talk about Get Out. The best movie of the year, I think. <laughs> okay, so for those of you who haven't seen it, go watch it right now. You should have seen it already five times because it's amazing. Uh, but we will be talking full-on spoilers in this film. So if you haven't seen it, stop this podcast right now. All right. So I'm curious, uh, besides the fact that I like specifically contacted you <laughs> and was like, please talk about this movie with me on my podcast. Uh, why did you choose Get Out to talk about? Oh, man. I, I remember, like, getting getting done with the film, like, immediately and being like, I hope that Kristen asked me to be, on, to be on her podcast for this one. And I just remember thinking I'm going to be, like, seething with jealousy, you know, of whoever gets to, like, sit down and chat this one out with you because there's just so much to unpack and so much to say. And I think um, it's... A really important film not only for the film itself but for what it's done for the industry of Mm. horror and proving Mm. to audiences that stories from people who have like historically been on the margins of um, horror narratives you know they can sell a movie and you know Mm. we we should be funding more diverse filmmakers and more diverse writers and it's so nice to just kind of see that blossoming in the horror industry so it's I'm pretty excited about it Mm -hmm, definitely Jordan Peele, the director of this film, you may, you probably already know from Key and Peele, 
And for me, I just find the intersection of horror and comedy is so gratifying Mm -hmm. to me. Like, I feel like so many wonderful projects come out of that. And I feel like it takes a really dynamic mind to, like, encompass all of that. And we were just chatting briefly before we started recording about how much we can't wait for Jordan Peele to, like, do a million more projects. Uh, For those of you who've already seen it, you probably know Get Out is the story of Chris and Rose, a young interracial couple who are going to go home to Rose's family, and uh, she's going to introduce them to Chris, her new boyfriend. And then everything goes to hell and is terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. Uh, Yeah, Rose's family is involved in genetic experimentation in moving, uh, let's see, like elderly white minds into black bodies. So it's terrifying. And we will jump in and start discussing everything about this amazing film. One of the most prominent themes in the film to me that jumped out, especially with watching it again recently, uh, were Rose and Jeremy themselves. Mm -hmm. Like, to me, I feel they really portrayed... The, the two sides to white supremacy in the United States. You know, you have Jeremy, who's like a really aggressive, creepy, alt-right kind of dude. Mm-hmm. He's always talking about like muscle structure and <laughs> genetics and, oh God, yeah, fighting. And then you have Rose, who is more of the, uh, you know, the fake liberal. You know, she seems like she understands and is you know, egalitarian and not racist, but that, oh, lo and behold, she's super racist. Yeah. <laughs> like, what struck me about um, Rose's character in particular was just the idea of white female toxicity and mm. the history, the troubling history that um, uh, white women and black men have had. Like, if you think about Emmett Till, you mm-hmm. know, where, you know, historically, like, if a black man, black men were perceived as a threat to mm-hmm. white women's um, safety and to their honor and things like that. So, you know, it's kind of interesting that she lures him in in that way, in a romantic way, mm-hmm. um, and that that kind of sets the tone, you know, for what happens later. So I thought that that was really interesting about Rose. And yeah, and Jeremy's just, he's frightening. He is. But I love that actor. Um, <laughs> his name is like Caleb Landry, I think. He is amazing. I think he's he's a great, he's a great actor. He was in um, a Cronenberg, um, not David, but his son directed a film called Antiviral, oh. which is a body horror film and that he stars in. Interesting. So, yeah. Uh, you know, it's inter- you brought up that relationship uh, historically between white women and black men. And it's interesting because I was just reading an article on the women of the alt-right movement. Mm-hmm. And some of those narratives you mentioned, uh, they n- noted them word for word in recruitment tactics in bringing women into the alt-right movement. Mm-hmm. And you've got to be kidding me it's 2017 right and this argument is still prevalent in white women's minds yeah like yeah they're going around like raping our women and you know committing crimes and i mean it's been a thread um you know i mean i think emmett till is probably the the most famous case of you know, a white woman accusing um, a young black boy, 14 at the time, of hitting on her down in Missouri, and he was lynched and shot. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, so that's probably the most 
famous case, but you know, this has been an ongoing thing. I can't remember the woman's name who accused a black man of drowning her kids. That oh, she got carjacked yes, and um, the murderous mother. Yeah, um, and she drowned her kids um, and accused a black man of doing it. So, you know, Rose's role, I think, is really interesting. Uh, you know, regarding what you said in terms of like that sort of like um, friendly liberal mm-hmm. racism, but yes. also this kind of historical threat of, you know, black men being a threat to white women's safety. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I also felt a lot of that coming from the family themselves, the parents, yeah. you know, yeah. like the, um, oh, would have voted for Obama oh, a third God. time, you know, <laughs> uh, like as if, you know, Chris is a representative for all black people everywhere. And yeah, it's kind of like when people say, I can't be racist, I have black friends, you know, it's kind of like, I would have voted for Obama for a third term. Mm-hmm. It's the same kind of kind of thing. Um, yeah, but I mean, there's so much about that film that for me was just cringeworthy. Like I sat in the audience just feeling every muscle just kind of tense and and feeling the awfulness of what Chris was going through and these microaggressions and things I myself have experienced in a similar way. It was just so uncomfortable to to see that and to hear some of, you know, what uh, Rose's family was saying, and then the guests at the at the party. Oh, good God, the guests! <laughs> yeah. Oof. Before I jump into the guests and mm-hmm. how they were just like horrible stereotype <laughs> after horrible stereotype. Uh, 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 yeah, I, I thought about the dad though, and all the things that he was saying to mm-hmm. Chris about like. You know, a black man won in the Olympics in front of Hitler. Isn't that great? They're just sticking it to him. And I would have voted for Obama again. And it kind of felt like a metaphor for um, allyship as a performance. Yeah. And that's something I've been reading a lot more of lately is this idea that uh, like it's really a, a prevalent phenomenon in uh, social justice circles. And it I'm is. I'm starting to realize it a lot. I've only been a union organizer 10 years and I'm starting to notice it now. Uh, but it, it does feel more prevalent now with social media that everyone can get up on their soapbox and mm-hmm. like... You know, they're not doing shit, but they made a post about it. Yeah, so it was. I don't know. It's funny that you said that because I had a friend on Facebook. Um, caught, he was at the uh, Boston rally against hate this past weekend, and um, some of the images that were coming out of out of that, he I can't remember exactly what he wrote, but he basically um, implied that you know these super aggressive photos that were coming out of that event weren't necessarily the tone of the event as a whole. Um, And so it's that sort of performative, like, oh, we see a photographer there. We're going to, like, you know, put our, like, gas masks up and, like, raise our fists and, you know, scream. And and while that, you know, provides for a powerful image, it's kind of like how real is what we're, we're seeing. Yeah. Also... Like with Rose, the character, I couldn't place it in my mind why I disliked her so much. Mm-hmm. And then I remembered she's that character on that girl's show. Oh. And I just had like this subconscious hate for her. I was like, I don't like that show. But like, I couldn't remember right away that it was her from the show. Yeah, I've never watched that show, but I think just hearing 
some of the criticism, reading some of the criticism about the show, it's like you immediately think like peak white feminism, oh, sort yeah. of, you know. Um, so I can understand <laughs> why you had that gut reaction. There should be a little alarm that goes off, like peak white feminism. Also on their way to the family's house, there is a scene uh, that like when it first starts off doesn't feel very profound. It's them hitting the deer. Yeah. And then I think later on that becomes so much more. Yeah, it's such a poetic moment, but you don't realize it until later in the film. And that's part of why I love the movie is because there are so many moments like that that as you're watching it, you don't really grasp um, the depth of what's happening until mm, later on in the movie. But definitely. Yeah. And I definitely want to come back to talking about deer later mm-hmm. uh, as we progress with the themes of the film. Yeah. Um, oh, also... In that first beginning uh, chunk of the film, there is the interaction with the police. Mm -hmm. So what happens, you know, you've all seen it, you know what we're talking about, but uh, they hit the deer and then the cop comes and is kind of like bitching at them like, you know, you're supposed to call animal control, not me, because he's obviously very busy. (laughs) (laughs) But then he kind of, the police officer starts to eye Chris and wants his ID and Rose steps in and, you know, tells him no he wasn't driving you don't need to check his id and in that moment you do kind of like rose yeah because you're like yeah stand up for chris yeah that's good um and i was telling angela before we started like my husband was a man of color and when we first met we were walking one night with our coffees because we were like sophomores in college you know we're super (laughs) deep and a cop stopped us and asked nathan for his id and i started to you know like telling him like we didn't do anything blah 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 and then Nathan squeezed my hand and it was a very short and to the point um you know experience on what it's like to be a person of color and interact with the police because I didn't had not previously had that experience at all and so in that moment I was kind of like why is Rose agitating a cop Mm -hmm. too you know so in that moment it felt I don't know, you wanted to like Rose and what she was doing, but also it was a little triggering for me, just given, you know, my personal experience with my ex. Um, But I don't know, what did you think of that scene? Well, I think it was another one of those scenes that didn't click for me until later. Mm. Um, And, uh, like, with Rose trying to cover her trail, basically, that, you know, she didn't want... Uh, the cop to see his ID so that there would be no trail of his disappearance. And what makes that scene really interesting in retrospect is like maybe the cop wasn't a terribly bad guy. Maybe he knew that several men of color had been disappearing in the area Mm -hmm. and was, um, you know, trying to like keep track of Chris. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw that theory come out in a couple of different um, things that I read online, I thought that was really interesting. Um, sort of the, you know, when you get to the end of the film, obviously there's a whole different view of the relationship between cops and people of color. But like in that moment, you know, like what's really going on? I couldn't, mm-hmm. I couldn't quite figure out what Peel was, was doing there. If yeah. he was trying to make the, 
the cop more of a neutral character or if it really was an incident of harassment. Mm, such a good point. It pro- oh. You know Rose is evil and maniacal, so it was probably it was totally not creating a paper trail. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the other thing Rose did. The other thing Rose did that made me think less of her though is she had this way of speaking to Chris, and her dad does it too, mm-hmm. where like she, they try to like use hip slang and say like "You're my man." Yeah. Or, like how long is this thing? <laughs> you know, like. Ugh. Yep. I. Hate it so much when white people do that. (laughs) I had a friend who was a fellow union organizer, and uh, she was a black woman. Mm -hmm. And I noticed all the other old white men organizers when they talked to her, Mm -hmm. they would be like, "Mecca, what's up, yo, yeah, yeah, what?" You know, just I can't even do an impression of it, right? But just the stupidest shit. Yeah. And one day I was like, "Mecca, does that? Do you notice that too? Does that bother you?" And Mm -hmm. she's like, "Fucking yes, it bothers me." She's like, I don't come up to you guys and say, oh my God, can we go to yoga after we hit the gap? (laughs) That, yeah, we, yeah, you definitely do not ever have to say that to me. But it was, I mean, that's how insightful the film is. It captures so many of those microaggressions, like you had said before. That normally you wouldn't necessarily notice. But Mm -hmm. like, as a person of color watching that film, like, I definitely was super uncomfortable just seeing it kind of just blatantly out there and seeing it for what it is instead of something that I'm personally experiencing in the moment. Mm. It was very uncomfortable viewing for me. Did it feel a little validating in a sense, though? It did. Mm -hmm. It did. You know, what's funny about it is that I think because the film does have its humorous moments, people can can look at it and say like, oh, well, that's just like way over the top. But the thing about it is that a lot of those comments aren't necessarily over the top or if they are over the top, it's it's just riding that line. Mm. It's so close to not being over the top. So it was. I thought it was really clever the way that he was able to write it in a way that was like, kind of funny but still uncomfortable and and he was able to give it enough bite that you noticed it when it was happening Mm -hmm. so it didn't just kind of fly under the radar you definitely knew when these microaggressions were happening mom jumps in right away and just has all these inappropriate boundary crossings (laughs) with chris and like lures him into mm-hmm. the hypnosis under the guise of like we're gonna help you quit smoking, mm-hmm. uh, but you know ultimately like is prepping his brain mm-hmm. um, for to be in the sunken place. And I thought like the physical representation of the sunken place mm-hmm. in the film was so cool. Yeah, the way they did that. Yeah. Um, I had some a few ideas on it, but I'm curious. Like, what does the sunken place mean to you? Um, I think to me, it, it kind of represented like just the inability to like move forward under a racist system, Mm -hmm. like the inability, like you're stuck. Um, I know that it's come to mean a lot of different things since then. I've seen a lot of, you know, memes where it's like, so-and-so is in the sunken place. Like they're not, um, realizing kind of the historical, um, and the way society, you know, like how things work in a racist society. You mm-hmm. know, I've seen it with like Ben Carson, you know, Ben Carson's in the sucking place, you know. 
We hope you get out someday, Ben. <laughs> but yeah, you know, his, his, uh, even the way he's kind of like just falling and trying to climb back up and he can't climb back up and he can't get out of this hole. Like I really felt like it's kind of this pit that you're in that, you know, you can't move beyond the color of your skin because society is just not allowing you to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of the way that I read that imagery. Um, but I think it can mean a lot of different things for different people. Mm-hmm. No, I definitely agree with your summation. Um, I think this film does, I mean, obviously I'm a white woman, so I, I can't n- know for sure, but I feel like this film speaks so much to like the different aspects of black consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, like particularly a scene that really jumped out at me was the the scene with Georgina. Ooh, Georgina to me is like the most frightening character in she the whole. Is. She scares the crap out of me. Well, also she's always got the jump scenes. Yes, um, yes. Uh, but then like there's the interaction where Chris is talking to her and and just trying to like have an honest moment about like. You know, I feel better when there's another black person around. Mm-hmm. And um, I forget exactly what he says, but something to the extent of like, you know, being around a lot of white people can be weird. Right. And she's like, that's no, no. Yeah. No. <laughs> she says that over and over. Mm-hmm. And then she's like, that hasn't been my experience at all. But then starts crying. Yeah. And it's just like, what's going on? I think it's really interesting, too, that Georgina is the only character that we see. Um, first, she's the only black woman that we visibly see. I think that oh, um, yeah. as a character, I think that Chris's mother is kind of a character, too. But, she, you know, we obviously never see her. But mm-hmm. Georgina is the only black woman visible and she seems to be the only one that operates outside of the rules of like a flash triggering her inner person to come out you know chris doesn't he doesn't ding a china cup and there's no flash or anything that kind of triggers her Mm -hmm. um it's like her her humanity kind of bubbles up on its own and kind of uncontrollably. And I thought it was interesting um, that she's kind of the only character and the only woman um, in the film that that does that. Um, And I'm not sure what to make of it, but I just thought it was kind of an interesting thing. Yeah, it is. And I also wonder, like, with how old the grandparents are Mm -hmm. in these bodies, if the fact that they're maybe, like becoming slightly uh, like Alzheimer's or something mm-hmm. would give the people originally, you know, ownership of their own bodies back. And yeah. So maybe. Uh-huh. Maybe, yeah. It's possible. You know, so much of this film also was the the people you met at that party. Mm. Yeah. They were awful. They were awful. <laughs> they were truly awful people. And I feel like they jumped in on so many of the bad stereotypes of white interaction with black people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like the perceived athleticism right. because he's black. Mm-hmm. The perceived, um, you know, he's obviously an excellent, skilled lover mm-hmm. because he's black. And the uh, just the plain, like, 
black is in fashion now. It's just yeah. Like, oh my god. I thought it was really, really smart too to include an Asian character asking those questions, and his question specifically relates to how do you feel about the African American experience in America, as if to say like. You know, we're both minorities here. So, like, if I take over your body, mm-hmm. you know, will I be better off or will I be worse off? Mm. It's this kind of weird moment, you know, where it's it's like, okay, we're both subject to similar discrimination, but who's worse off? But it did seem um, like out of the narrative of the storyline to have an Asian yeah. in there. I was curious about yeah. it. Um, but there was also a few Asian dudes marching with the all right guys. So, hey, oh, it's boy. true to life. That's so problematic. <laughs> I don't even know. know what to say. I know. <laughs> uh, you know, I saw one blogger pointed out that everyone at the party was wearing red hmm. and Chris was wearing blue. Like everyone, oh, yeah, really? I didn't yeah, notice that. Yeah, everyone had a little hint of red with their black outfit. Hmm. You know, and the... The blogger thought that this was to signify Republicans and Democrats, yeah, which was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's like a full-fledged uh, thing that they did. But also, what was creepy about the party that is also a, a holdover from Martyrs is mm-hmm. everyone arrived in those big black cars. <gasps> when I saw that, <laughs> oh my God, that is exactly what I thought. That yes. is exactly what it reminded me of, just how they come in single file in their fancy black cars. And I was just like, this is a Martyrs moment. Like mm-hmm. we're headed we're headed towards Martyrs territory. Yeah. And I mean, it was kind of that same vein of like these super rich people that you know in martyrs it was the the women being held captive and in get out it's chris and Mm -hmm. it's this upper class that is just using them for their bodies really yeah it's kind of the the assimilation of the body that i that we talked about with martyrs you know that that um anna's body was not useful until they were able to use it for their own purposes until they were able to use her body as a vessel for um, martyrdom and to see the great beyond. And in the same way, they, they're trying to use Chris's body um, to prolong life um, and maybe gain what they perceive to be some advantages. Mm-hmm. Speaking of bodies, uh, your essay on this film like totally blew my mind and made me think of it in a completely different way. And uh, for those of you who haven't read it, check it out on overthinkinghorrorfilms.com. <laughs> um, but it was basically talking about the genre of body horror and how we had not seen black bodies in that role before. Yeah. Um, it's not... I think um, because of the material that Peel was dealing with, you know, a lot of it was uh, metaphorical, but I felt like this was the first body horror film that we've seen that starts with the black body as the perfect specimen. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when you look at other body horror films, historically it's always been a white man. Um, And we've recently gotten some, some... female centered but it's always a white body mm-hmm. um and the implication is that these bodies go from perfection and purity to being disintegrated or dismembered um or mutilated in some way and this was the first time that i can recall seeing a film that took a block black body and did 
the same thing, although it's metaphorical, we mm-hmm. anticipate Chris being dismembered and being mutilated mm-hmm. for his, um, you know, apparent gifts. Um, so I thought that was that was really interesting that finally we have a film that says the black body is of value mm-hmm. beyond these implications of slavery or labor or things like that, that it has inherent value and that that value um, can be kind of disintegrated in some way. Mm-hmm. All right. So then things escalate and Chris realizes, you know, what's going on. And I love that scene so much where he goes into this little closet and finds the photographic evidence of Rose luring other black people to the house. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's it's such a aha moment you know and yeah. i hate that photo so much where she's got like the handkerchief on her head <laughs> oh i didn't notice that <laughs> it's like the fifth one in it just is like it just starts as you're looking through these photos as he's looking through them it's like you are re- the awfulness of rose is revealed mm-hmm. and like she's pretending you know to care about black people and she's like the cultural appropriation of it just stands out and yeah. then also the the picture of her with a woman so it's like right and i and i thought that that was interesting um there was an interesting uh essay that i read about like how black women are much more suspicious of white women and how this is proven by the fact that Rose was only able to kind of entice one black woman to to her. There's so many metaphors. There's so many interesting things in there, but I thought that that was an interesting point that there's always been this kind of contentious relationship between black women and white women. Um, And even now, you know, um, there's, I think there's a lot of, which, which the film touches on a lot of sort of tension about black men dating white women and I think Chris comments on the fact that maybe Georgina doesn't like him Mm -hmm. because he's with a white woman um and so I thought it was interesting you know like not too many black women kind of fell into Rose's grasp it was much easier for her to lure black men so I thought that that was an interesting point in that in that essay that I read um but yeah she's she's the only only woman Interesting. Well, with 53% of them voting us, I should say, voting for Trump, you know, it's like, (laughs) they were not trustworthy, you know. Uh, And then also, a little later, when he, like, is, Chris is trying to leave, Mm -hmm. and he wants the keys, and everything is kind of exploding around him, Mm -hmm. and he's realizing the severity of what's about to happen. And there's just something about that scene that stuck out to me so much, where he's like, Rose, give me the keys. Give me the keys. And Rose is acting and faking and like, oh, I can't find him. And, blah, blah, blah. and then she's like, you know, I can't give you the keys, right, babe? Yeah. And like still calls him babe. Still calls him babe. Oh. Yep. Yep. Oh. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was just, it was really representative of how far Rose is willing to go for this. Mm-hmm. And I know it's her family and she's been indoctrinated, but I just... I don't understand the structure that holds that family together to do this. That's a good question. I mean, I think... Do you think they're making money? Do you think they're... Probably. I think they're making money. I think yeah. it's... it's, um, And I think it's also... You know, 
as true racists a way for them to keep their bloodline while still benefiting from black bodies you know to still have superiority Mm -hmm. um and you know obviously i mean i guess i kind of take the whole thing as a lot of metaphor so i don't know i guess it would be money yeah probably and you know that in itself is probably a good metaphor for for how families pass that hate down you know yeah it, it, yeah it's a good metaphor for being indoctrinated mm-hmm. which also like now brings me to the f- part of the film that actually made me feel really good mm-hmm. and that's the friendship between rod and chris Yay. <laughs> Yay. i loved that too <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I feel like you don't see male friendship portrayed in a meaningful way in films. Yeah. It's yeah. always like, oh, we're going to get drunk and meet some chicks, and that's male bonding. Mm-hmm. But this felt like a, like Rod had a real concern for him even before he went to the family's house. Yes. And then continually like tried to check up with him. Mm-hmm. You know, And it was just... Um, I don't know, it was a real sense of caring that you don't see very often. Yeah, it was really nice to see that. I think also, um, you know, there is this whole kind of like oral tradition of of blacks warning other blacks what areas are okay, what mm. areas aren't okay. So I read that as both their friendship, but also just the way like black people communicate sometimes you know, warning them of places that they can and can't go and where they can navigate safely and where they can. I think just before we were mm-hmm. we started taping, I was um, talking about the Negro Motorist Green Book, which is which was the book that was published during the Jim Crow era um, that helped blacks know where they could go safely when they were traveling cross-country in cars. So mm-hmm. places they could stop to eat safely, places that they could um, sleep safely. And... You know, we don't find these sort of like written versions of this anymore, but there's still, I feel like, a strong oral, like, hey, like, you can't go there. That's not safe for you to do. Yeah. You know, and so I felt like not only did he have his back, like, as a friend, but it was also like, you know, Chris, you should understand, like, what's safe, what are safe spaces for people of color and what are not. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that that was, that was really interesting. Yeah. Um, There was also a scene that added a bit of comic relief, but was also an excellent metaphor as well, when Rod goes to the police. (laughs) And admittedly, he's being a little over the top. Mm -hmm. They're turning him into a sex sex slave. (laughs) I love that scene so much. And you also work, uh, you know, for a bit, like you probably have a bureaucratic feel to your office, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit. Yeah. So sometimes, I mean, I understood the police in this scene when she, uh, the policewoman says, uh, I've, heard, I've heard your story. Could you hold on a second? <laughs> and then she goes and grabs two other detectives who are co-workers. Yeah. And so Rod goes through the scene again and tells her, tells them all everything that he feels is happening. And there's this moment of tense silence and then all three of the cops are just <laughs> yeah, and they just laugh. Yeah, they laugh really hard. <laughs> and it is this moment of like I saw it in the theater, and everyone laughed too because it sounds crazy, right? But also in that moment, it's such an excellent metaphor for how cases for people who've gone missing who are also people of color aren't taken seriously. Yeah, and that was so brilliant to do in that way. And it was also pretty smart, I thought, for him to use people of color as the cops to show Ooh, you. Yeah. 
Yes. You know, how, um, I guess, like white supremacy infiltrates everything and what Mm -hmm. can be taken seriously and what is taken seriously and what isn't. Um, But yeah, it's a a really great moment. And that this film operates on so much duality like that, where this happens again and again, where there's, you know, there's two sides, even in the funniest moments, there's these either cringeworthy or uncomfortable or sad things that are kind of fluttering beneath the surface of everything. So... Mm. You're right. It is so it's so smart to choose the other detectives as people of color because then it, it shows that systematic racism exactly. is there. And that's something I encountered. I was working with No More Deaths along the desert and I met a lot of the border patrol mm-hmm. just, you know, in interaction because we're in the same spaces. And I was shocked at how many of them were Latino. Yeah. I was like, what? Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 real, yeah. <laughs> you know. It's the reality of it. So, yeah, that's an that's an interesting moment. Mm-hmm. In the movie. A, it was a fantastic scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we have Rose's interaction with Rod, and uh, it felt like you know Rose was obviously trying to lure Rod in because she thought you know maybe he is attracted to her as mm-hmm. well. And that scene creeped me out so much. Um, Because originally, you know, it was Rod reaching out to try and get some information about his friend who's missing. And then Rose turns it into, I know you think about fucking me, which inappropriate and creepy. Yeah. But also, her family is watching her make this call. Right, right. It's like, here's the line, say it and see if you can get him lured in. You know, see if you can bring him in. It's like they were playing on that old... Uh, argument we were just talking about about white women and their sexuality Mm -hmm. Uh, and the family was like encouraging it for their livelihood yeah yeah it's a which is also you know a representative of the alt-right feeding into this to bring in more female members Mm -hmm. yeah can we also just talk about what a creep rose is like the cereal she's a super creep But I loved that scene because, like, I was like, she's a serial killer. Get it? She's oh, a serial killer. Oh, shit. Ah. But, yeah, that moment, I just immediately started cracking up with her eating her individual Fruit Loops and drinking <laughs> drinking the milk separately. I was like, that bitch would drink through a straw. From, that's disgusting to drink milk through a straw. That brings us to... Chris actually uh, making his escape, which was a fantastic scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's the scene. Okay, um, so there's many very blunt metaphors to slavery in the film. Yeah, uh, particularly the auction where they're holding up the bingo cards. Yeah, um, and I, the also when Chris is cha- trapped in the chair, he starts to pick the cotton out mm-hmm. of the chair. And that is the thing that saves him because right. he puts it in his ears uh, so he can't hear the, the teacup and be hypnotized. Mm-hmm. There's so much there's so much there, I guess. I mean, obviously, like in talking about slavery, like literally like not doing your quote unquote job would get you killed. Mm-hmm. You know, and here we have sort of a modern day enslavement of Chris's body where again, if he doesn't pick the cotton he he'll literally be killed you know um 
But I mean, it's just like, again, it's like the genius of the movie, right? That all of these little touches are in there that mm-hmm. always refer back to something else. Um, but yeah, it's pretty, pretty interesting mm-hmm. yeah. metaphor for, for slavery and. Definitely. It was, and it was so like just woven in like so subtly too yeah. but like it's such a huge image to think about and like what it means to us historically mm-hmm. um, yeah so then okay he beats the shit out of Jeremy which I greatly enjoyed yeah that was um, lovely <laughs> with the um, with the ball with the too. lacrosse yes, stick right <laughs> yes and it was a was it croquet too croquet ball it might have been it was some white people sport yeah. like <laughs> So the imagery of that was wonderful. Okay, so I'm really curious to hear what you think of Chris using the giant buck to kill the father. Yeah. I feel like that meant so much. There is crazy deer imagery like all throughout the movie. And um, again, it's one of those things, you know, when they hit the deer in the beginning of the film, you're kind of like, okay, they hit a deer and it's kind of a jump scare. So Mm -hmm. you're, you know... um, and Chris's reaction, you're kind of like, it's a little weird, but, you know, like, maybe he likes animals. And, yeah. like, he's making sure the deer, you know, is okay. Um, but then you realize that his mother died. Um, was it a hit and run or a car crash? And she was by the side of the road mm-hmm. um, for a long time. And he was home watching TV. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is just kind of burdened with guilt about yeah. that and so seeing this deer hit um by the side of the road like triggers some memories of his mom um yeah and then later on in the film um the father says something like i hate deer yeah you know when i see him dead by the road i say thank god or something like that he just kind of alludes to the fact that he likes dead deer he goes off on it really he goes yeah he goes in and so you're already kind of like tying a thread between the deer that was hit and him saying that and then later in the film the buck on the wall um that chris uses to uh impale Um, impale his attackers Um, again like there's another thread there with the deer and um, like obviously there's an allusion to the black buck Mm -hmm. you know which is this uh, stereotype historical stereotype of black men Um, and yeah so it's this amazing moment of the black buck literally like killing Mm -hmm. you know this uh, white attacker Um, so yeah, it was, there was a lot of like deer, yeah, stuff in there. Yes, I also felt like in that moment where he used the deer to murder the father, it mm-hmm. was like this um, moment of forgiving himself for being inactive during his mother's death. Yeah, even though he was just a kid, right? You know, and he had written like, how would he have done anything? He was right. just a child. But I think um, in that moment, you know, he forgave himself and really became his own defender. Mm-hmm. And it was such a great scene. Yeah, it really was. And I have to say, like, for being a horror film, zero, very little gore. Or uh, Yeah. Was, There's uh, actually, you know, again, like, so much of it operates on metaphor. And it's the anticipation of gore. 
um, that I think is way more frightening. And that's that's typically like how horror films work. For me, at least, it's Mm -hmm. the gory ones don't scare me that much. It's the ones where your imagination is left to kind of spiral that are the most frightening. Um, So I think this one works really well on that level. And also I think what's great about it is that Peel is able to avoid um, sort of like torture porn he's able to avoid mm. exploiting mm-hmm. black suffering yes. to make the point of his his film work he's able to do it almost all metaphorically so you understand and you anticipate this violence upon his body but you never actually see it happen you know mm. we never get to that point um and i think that that is like an amazing thing to do because he easily could have yeah he could have know, done it so easily and i could've. feel like it is so cheap to yeah. do that and mm-hmm. disrespectful. Um, and it's it's a thing right now in social media, these, mm-hmm. you know, home videos of black men being shot down or, you know. Um, so I was really appreciative of the fact that he chose not to do that but was still able to very cleverly, you know, get his point across without having to resort to that. Definitely. I just, oh, I can't believe this is his first film. I know. It's so good. It's amazing. <laughs> Okay, so then Jer- er, Chris kills the dad, and then somehow Jeremy is still alive? Yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. That was one of the most surprising things to me, I thought. I was like, you saw that pool of blood by his head. Right. There's no way he'd get back up. <laughs> Chris is trying to get away, and Rose is out there, like, chasing him with a shotgun. And one thing that jumped out at me when I rewatched it is in one of the very first interactions between Rose and Chris, uh, Chris asks Rose, did you tell your family I'm black because I don't want them to be at me with a shotgun. Right, chasing yeah. down the, the yes. street with a shotgun, and yes. she literally ends up doing that. Yeah, I totally missed that the mm-hmm. first time I saw it. Um, but yeah, that was really surprising. And also in the end, we just see... Just Rose being manipulative as fuck till the very end. Yeah. Like when he's strangling her, she's still saying, I love you. Yeah. I love you. Like, no, you don't. No, you don't. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. So creepy. So creepy. Um, So then, let's see, should we jump? Should we talk about the final scene or? Sure. Okay. So in that moment, I was, when I saw it in the theater, and the cops pull up mm-hmm. to the scene of, you know, Walter having just shot Rose and everyone's covered in blood. The whole theater collectively went, oh, shit. Yes. You know, because we knew what was coming. Yeah. But then Rod got out of that car and everyone in the theater went, yay! Yeah. You know, um, and I, I just loved it so much. I know, that was one of my favorite moments and maybe one of my favorite viewing experiences in a theater moments like ever mm-hmm. um just because you finally feel that everyone is behind making sure Chris is safe yes and it's so rare to a see a narrative like this through the eyes of a black man and to um have white audiences um kind of align their interests with the interests of you know there's like this weird thing that happens we kind of talked about this before we started taping where um rose 
initially like, and I didn't even think of this because I identified with Chris right away, but Mm -hmm. some white audiences Mm -hmm. may have identified with Rose initially. And so there's this interesting flip. (laughs) I was one of them. (laughs) (laughs) But it's like, there's this interesting flip when you discover that Rose is not who she claims to be. Mm -hmm. And suddenly everyone is behind Chris. Everyone in the theater is behind making sure that he is safe and you're experiencing things kind of through his perspective now. And yeah, so that moment I think is just, it was so special. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever experienced something like that. Yeah. And what you just spoke to, I think was so brilliant of Peel to do because using horror as a genre, he was able to show white people what it's like a little bit yeah to be a person of color in regards to what everyday life concerns are and how they're different from a white person right and I think that was such a dynamic thing mm-hmm. you know I had Dante Powell who is a comic out of Iowa he was on the podcast and he just did like a brief vignette to mm-hmm. talk about get out and he said that he normally he doesn't like horror films because it's like what a werewolf a vampire what what is that yeah but he loved Get Out because he was like, this is it. This is this is real horror. This is what actually scares yeah. me. And uh, I think it's just such a dynamic film to be able to do that. And I think like it might have really opened some people's minds in a way. I hope so. I mean, I think that that is the power of horror films. Um, and this one was very um, kind of blatant. You know, you don't have to read a lot into it to see, you know, what kind of the the ideas were. Um, um, you don't have to. I mean, there's obviously a lot to unpack, but even if you're just going in and not interested in unpacking all of this stuff and mm-hmm. you're just going through the motions of what the film does, he very clearly leads you on a path. And it's, you know, it's really smart. Um so it doesn't take a lot of like, I think it takes a lot of processing after, but I think, you know, it's a great film where you're going to walk away with something to think about, no matter who you are. Definitely. And, uh, you know, I feel like I've been blabbing a lot and you're so brilliant. I want to ask you, like, were there any themes that jumped out at you that we didn't cover already? Yeah, I think um, just in thinking about, and we touched on it a little bit, but just like that interesting correlation between martyrs and this film and um, the use of the body and these issues of class and race and and how both kind of do the same thing but from very different perspectives and it just shows you like this is a worldwide issue Mm -hmm. you know I mean America has its you know very particular things in France as well but um yeah this idea of the use of brown bodies um just at the behest and whim of white supremacy is is something that is a thread between the two that I thought was really really interesting mm-hmm. and I didn't it didn't occur to me until those cars pulled up and I was like oh my god um yeah and I think um I think for me, the importance of the film is not only within the film itself, but just the way it's changing the industry. Mm. Um, I think uh, Peel was the first um, director and writer 
to have his debut film make over $100 million. Wow. It made something like $33 million in the first weekend. Wow. Um, and I know it was a hit internationally as well. I think I saw... Um, I saw a headline that said something like it was the number one movie in South Korea for a while. So, you know, it's having this ripple effect out Mm -hmm. in in the horror industry um, that I think is really going to pay off in the next decade. I think, Mm. um, you know, um, Blumhouse is already um, green lighting and funding some films by writers and actors of color. Um, So I think that it's we're we're moving into a really interesting time in, in horror. Oh, that's um, exciting. Yeah, and we'll be getting some narratives from folks that we don't necessarily always get narratives from. So. And, and that's such an awesome shift because so often in horror, we've seen people make plots out of the other, mm-hmm. which is a disservice, I think. And uh, now to be more inclusive, I think it's just going to make way better movies. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the endings. Okay. Uh, I'm curious. Do you think he pulled his punches by having the happy ending, or I'm curious just what your take is on either ending. I think he made the right choice. I do too. <laughs> um, I think we're in a moment where we really needed a good ending. We mm-hmm. really needed to see a black man thrive and survive and. You know, I guess the argument could be made that it's a little simplistic and it's a little predictable, but I felt like we really needed that moment. And I think that the proof is in the pudding, which is everyone cheering for Chris at the end. Mm -hmm. I think it's what audiences wanted um, and they got it, you know, so. I agree. And, uh, you know, because like it was such an emotional roller coaster within that last minute of like the cops show up. Oh, my God. Uh, but the one thing I did find interesting in the alternate ending, the one where Chris is, you know, hauled off by police and goes to prison, mm-hmm. is that Rod comes and visits him and he says, it's all okay because I stopped it, you know, and it kind of has that martyr aspect to it. Yeah. And I think that would have been powerful as well, but you're right I mean we just it feels like we need something to feel good about yeah <laughs> you know? and I think it was smart to include the alternative ending mm-hmm. on the DVD mm-hmm. I mean I think it's it's good to have both but I yeah I felt like I really needed I really needed a good ending mm-hmm. so yeah and it was such an awesome experience to be in a theater and have so many people emote together yeah you know yeah it makes me feel like we're all going to be okay. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yep. So I'm curious, uh, are there, were there any like really standout scenes for you? Um, any that we haven't touched on yet? Um, we talked about <laughs> Rose and her Cheerio, her Fruit Loops. <laughs> there were just so many funny moments for me. Um, and yeah, the experience of watching it with other people, I went with... Um, some friends of mine, they're a couple, a white couple, and my friend's boyfriend just started cracking up when they were like in the basement opening up people's heads. And he was like, he's like, I mean, they're opening up people's heads in like a 70s rec room. (laughs) (laughs) There were just like so many, you know. The coagula. Yeah. (laughs) Behold the coagula. (laughs) It's like their family waving. Like, like, we're going to kill people. Yay. (laughs) 
Yeah, I just think it's like, it's such a, f- it manages to be like a really um, profound film, but also just like a lot of fun mm-hmm. to watch and experience. Yeah, I just, I loved it. I thought it was great. Mm-hmm. It's a great movie. I feel like we really covered a lot. I'm sure in two hours I'm going to be like, God damn I know. It, we missed this part. Because <laughs> I always do that. Um, but as always, it's been amazing having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me back. <laughs> I'm so glad it was me. <laughs> I was like, oh, please let it be me. Please. I do feel like you're my horror movie soulmate. So um, it will it will always be you. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> that was so Candyman, by the way. It was always oh, you, Alan. Oh, shit. I brought it back to Candyman, too. Oh, no. It's going to come out of my bathroom. <laughs> All right. Well, that was Angela Harris. Please check out her blog or overthinkinghorrorfilms.com. It's amazing. Uh, anything else you want people to check out? No, I think, um, you know, I hope you check out the blog. I'm on Facebook. I'm also on Twitter. I don't tweet as much but you can find me um under angie tron that's a-n-g-i-t-r-o-n um and i'm hoping to have some fun stuff for halloween season for october so um maybe some giveaways maybe some interesting stuff there so yeah hope you'll uh check out the blog and um follow on facebook awesome do it uh that's been angela harris i'm Kristen lighty and this has been bloody mary have a good night